Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Nathan Chomilo. He is a pediatrician and an internist in Minnesota. I'll let him tell us a little bit more about himself. Hi, Max. Thanks for having me on. Uh, really glad to be here. So, uh, yeah, I'm a pediatrician and an internist uh, here in the Twin Cities. I practice uh, clinic pediatrics and uh, internal medicine hospitalist uh, work, and that uh, split uh, allows me to spend a fair amount of time uh, doing some community work and advocacy. And so, in addition to my day job, I'm also the medical director of Reach Out and Read Minnesota, which is a nonprofit that promotes early childhood literacy in pediatric practices. Uh, my work in uh, early childhood has led to some roles on the Governor's Early Learning Council, as well as the Early Childhood Champion for the state um, chapter for the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, and then I've uh, been involved in creating a grassroots organization for physicians here in Minnesota called Minnesota Doctors for Health Equity, where we really focus on both educating ourselves and other physicians about the role of um, health equity uh, across uh, policy and across um, kind of the different decisions that are being made uh, and where we as physicians can uh, partake in the, those conversations and better advocate for our communities that we serve and live in as well as ourselves. Wow, that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, strong bio there. You happen to also be of Cameroonian descent, right? Yes, yeah, so my, both my parents actually grew up in Cameroon. Um, mm -hmm. My mother's parents were Lutheran missionaries, uh, and then my father's family's uh, been there forever, and uh, they actually met at the University of Minnesota. Um, but, and so I was raised with a pretty strong Cameroonian background. Nice. Yeah, it's really rare for me to meet, uh, you know, people in this medical space from Cameroon. Um, I grew up there, moved here for college 10 years ago. So it's kind of it's nice to have you. You're the first Cameroonian on my podcast. <laughs> this is the first uh, podcast I've been on hosted by Cameroonian. So the uh, feeling is definitely mutual. <laughs> nice. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about your work you're doing when it comes to uh, childhood uh, literacy, as well as like sort of like education for um what would be your patient population. I noticed that just a few days ago, you published an op-ed speaking on educational disparities and sort of like how we need to address this opportunity gap. And I wonder whether you want to um, share a little bit more about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, my path to, you know, what I'm doing now kind of started medical school where I was pretty involved in the Student National Medical Association chapter at the University of Minnesota. And really, that's where I'm going through different lunch lectures and different uh, community organizing activities, kind of started to learn more about um, health disparities and, uh, and racial inequities that, um, you know, physicians uh, often don't get that education uh, early on in their medical career. And so I was really looking for something uh, to do in my practice um, that would help address some of these, um, you know, social drivers of health. And uh, my intern year, my very first rotation, I went to a lunch lecture uh, about Reach Out and Read uh, that was given by the then medical director of Reach Out and Read Minnesota. And it really just was kind of amazed me how uh, there was all this evidence about the impact of literacy on uh, one's health and academic outcomes and just really overall life trajectory um, and how there was this intervention 
that had been um, developed and well studied that shows that you know physicians can have a role in improving the chances that children uh, show up to school uh, with the tools they need to succeed. And so um, really d just went up to the speaker after words and said, I'm just an intern, but you know, I'm really interested in this and figure out how we could help it um, grow across Minnesota. Um, and several months later, they were looking for a resident to be on uh, their advisory committee. Um, and I joined then and um, been there with Reach Out and Read Minnesota for 10 years now and in my role as medical director for five years. Um, and so that's really been um, uh, my kind of gateway to advocacy, I would say. And, and so along those, you know, uh, those lines as I'm trying to kind of make the case for why Reach Out and Read uh, is important, I um, joined or applied and was appointed to the Governor's Early Learning Council um, several years ago. And that really kind of gave me a better idea of the conversations that are happening around the state uh, regarding uh, how we are trying to address uh, the deep ratio. Um, often, if you look at those lists of what's the healthiest state, what's the most educated state, Minnesota is at the top, usually in the top three uh, of states around the country in those outcomes. But uh, if you take a step back, look at the data, disaggregate it, um, we are actually amongst the worst states in the country for uh, Black and Native American and Hispanic uh, citizens. Uh, and so we have these deep racial disparities within our state that um, are finally, you know, starting to get more and more um, consistent attention. You know, th there's been people in Minnesota talking about these disparities for, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, but I think really in the last five years, uh, 10 years, it's been much more consistent. The uh, attention is being paid to it. And so, you know, my uh, op-ed was really kind of talking about uh, the language we use around these gaps and a lot of the language you'll see this is not just in Minnesota but across the country mm -hmm. talks about a achievement gaps right, right. It talks about our students aren't achieving um, black students don't achieve the same as white students uh, Hispanic students don't achieve the same as white students um, and so there's uh, I'm not the first person to point this out but um, you know I try to make the connection of how we, uh, when we use that language, it really sets the, the expectation that um, it's our students that are failing. It's not the system right. that have failed, failed our students. Uh, and, you know, ignores the fact that um, we have all these uh, racial disparities looking at things uh, related to like housing disparities. Tell that to Mayor income. Pete. <laughs> <laughs> right. Income, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, people that need to hear about the history of um, housing uh, discrimination and racial covenants and redlining. Um, you know, I myself, I, I'll admit, really started learning about these things only in the last three, four years. Um, I went, you know, through lots of, got lots of degrees and certifications and never was taught uh, any of these things until I started seeking it out on my own. And so, um, and so I think, you know, when we're having these conversations about these gaps, um, you know, the concerns, uh, in addition to the fact that we're focusing just on the students and not on the systems that are failing the students, is there's you know this concept called uh, belief gap that um, Diane Halsey, who is um, was one of my colleagues on the Governor's Early Learning Council, she was one of the co-chairs. You know, she talks about the fact that students and families that hear this over and over uh, about how uh, because you're black or brown, you're likely to end up in a worse place. You know, they start believing that 
And then the white students also, you know, and the white families are also hearing this and they start to believe it as well. And it's, it kind of becomes ingrained in our society that these disparities are there and it kind of really kind of mimics some of the um, ideas that um, have been talked about how institutional racism just persists and it's like this initial separation. And then over time we forget that our systems are the ones that created it and we think it's actually the people that are deficient and not the systems. And so it was, it was my attempt to kind of help interject that from the role as a, you know, pediatric primary care provider and the things I see in clinic. Right. So it sounds like basically in changing the language and the, the way in which we talk about issues related to opportunities and what affects children's learning, we're kind of trying to get away from what might lead to some level of internalized racism? Yeah, and, you know, internalized racism is not only, um, well, you know, it's, it's really propagated by the systems uh, that we experience, and then it's, you know, what ends up uh, happening to our children, happening to our, us as adults um, when we, uh, we uh, often, you know, then end up seeing ourselves um, as in a lesser light just because of stories and misinformation that we've been told, um, you know, by whether it's media, whether it's the books we read, whether it's the words coming out of our teachers' mouths or, or the adults in our lives' mouths. Um, and so it's really trying to kind of change uh, some of that. Got it. So when we speak of that sort of like opportunity gap in the school system, um, one of the things that come up a lot, and this has been a lot more sort of like present in the news, is this notion of food insecurity at home, but also at school. The current presidential candidate, uh, Julian Castro, wants to take a stab at food insecurity, especially for children, uh, in making sure that children get, you know, two meals at school, but also sort of like this big cancellation of the notion of lunch debt. So, yeah, so certainly the school lunch debt. Um, uh, we even just had an issue uh, here in Minnesota recently in one of the first ring suburbs uh, where there was students who hadn't had their uh, accounts paid up. And so uh, the school workers decided to take hot meals from that were already served to the patient or to the, to the students, take it and dump it out in front of them and give them a cold meal. And so they were like wasting food all to try to like make a point to students who it's not even, you know, within their control that this debt gets paid. Um, and so no, tr I think, you know, I don't know um, Julian Castro's plans. So I can't really speak to that specifically, but just in, you know, general, um, you know, the, the article I did cite in my op-ed was about uh, in New York City, how uh, they el eliminated school lunch debt and um, this idea of only certain students you know, uh, get a free reduced lunch. They just gave everybody um, the free uh, lunch and a reduced lunch. And uh, they saw that, uh, you know, scores uh, raised across the board. And, you know, if you just look at the uh, you know, science of it, you know, particularly uh, in early childhood, when we have our developing brain, that is really, you know, sensitive to these fluctuations in nutrition, having access to healthy, nutritious food is certainly important. And as our, our, our children enter school and they're trying to learn, um, you know, anyone who's ever been hungry at some point can know how difficult it can be to focus. And if you're trying to balance that with a developing brain where you don't have the same executive functioning skills as far as self-regulation and control, um, you're going to all of a sudden potentially become labeled as a troublemaking child. And maybe uh, it's not that we need to give you food, but 
we should be giving you pills to uh, try to help with your behavior. And so it can kind of uh, lead to this cascade of, that really impacts your outcomes down the line, all just because we couldn't find a way to get you uh, access to uh, healthy, nutritious food. And so I, I really would laud any attempts that looks at ways to you know, fill in the, the gaps in nutrition that lots of our communities currently face. Absolutely. And so we know that, as you mentioned already, right, like scores change when kids are well fed at home and at school. And broadly speaking, the like long term impact of education on people's health. I'm curious, you know, like specific to literacy, right, with your reach out and read program. What are some of the tangible initiatives when it comes to childhood literacy? Like how do initiatives related to childhood literacy ultimately sort of like turn around what would otherwise have been outcomes related to the kids and ultimately, you know, like the impact on behavior when they're adolescents, especially during those ages where they're more likely to partake in sort of like risky behaviors and whatnot? So I I guess I would say that uh, children who enter school, enter kindergarten, you know, without those basic language skills they'll need to learn to read, um, they are three to four times more likely um, uh, to drop out in later years. Uh, we know that if uh, you're struggling to read in first grade, um, most of the time you'll struggle to read by the time you're in fourth grade. And that's a critical period of time because that's when you transition or our educational systems transition from learning to read to reading to learn. And so there's data that shows that you know two thirds of students who cannot read proficiently by the end of fourth grade uh, will likely end up in jail or on welfare of some sort. Right. And so this is looking at, you know, impacting your trajectory of your whole life. And as we uh, go into adulthood, um, you know, as an internist, you can look at lots of data on the impact of limited health literacy. Uh, and so, you know, part of that is just knowing how to navigate the health system. But part of that is just being is literacy. It's being able to read and understand the information that's being presented to you. Uh, and those with limited health literacy have higher, you know, readmission rates. They have uh, worse outcomes of chronic diseases. They have more medication errors and more higher hospitalizations, um, general and poor health overall. In fact, uh, there was uh, a statistical analysis that looked and saw that the impact on your health uh, the all, of all-cause mortality of limited literacy is the same as having a diagnosis of diabetes. Right. So, you know, we spend a lot of money and time and efforts to try to educate people and uh, prevent diabetes and treat diabetes, uh, but we really don't spend, um, and there's at least not the, the publicization of efforts to address literacy in the same way, even though it has the same impact on one's health and on one's trajectory. And in the, you know, in the op-ed, I talked about how these gaps start early. Right? And so we know that we can start to see gaps in vocabulary as early as 18 to 24 months of age. You know, we know that in, you know, around 80% of the brain has undergone some form of development by the time you're three. And so if we are waiting until children are in preschool or kindergarten to really try to address um, the, the, these gaps in literacy, we're going to continue to miss a large number of children. And uh, you know, I think some of my work stemmed, or you know, passion for this work, I should say, stemmed from in uh, medical school. I was involved in a high school mentoring program to try to increase the pipeline of um, qualified, um, strong applicants from underrepresented in medicine backgrounds to medical school. Um, 
and even then you can start to see that just there's so much uh, of a gap to for uh, lots of our children uh, of color and children from under-resourced backgrounds uh, to make up that you know if we're waiting till high school to try to increase the pipeline we're just not going to be able to squeeze enough out of it you know we really need to keep going further and further um, up the pipeline if we really want to you know uh, have a competitive applicant to medical school or any other part of society. Um, and so, you know, Reach Out and Read is ideal because we start at birth talking about the importance of literacy. We start talking about how parents are our children's first teachers and just simple things like reading, talking, singing out loud can really help uh, engage the brain and, and help the brain be more prepared to learn vocabulary and language and to succeed down the road. Um, and the evidence behind Reach Out and Read has shown this, that you know, clinics and children who go to clinics that participate in Reach Out and Read, uh, they score higher in vocabulary tests at 18 months and 24 months than children who go to clinics that don't. Um, we see some of these effects are most pronounced in uh, children who come from communities that are traditionally under-resourced. Um, so children who are served by Medicaid, children who come from um, uh, immigrant communities where English is a second language. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, a lot of those benefits um, early on are really kind of what we're trying to focus uh, our efforts on. And so, you know, kids would go to clinics that participate in Reach Out and Read. What does that look like? Do you guys have books in your waiting areas for the children to sort of like read while they're waiting for the doctor? Or is it like games? What exactly does it look like? In Yeah, so there's certainly different, like every, you know, program, there's certain um, different levels of uh, performance. And I think some of our high performing clinics have what we call a literacy rich environment, where they do have uh, lots of books in the waiting room, and some even have volunteer readers, right? So um, uh, volunteers who've been trained on, you know, reading with kids of different ages and how they can kind of impart, impart, impart different uh, tips to parents um, about reading. And then when the children comes in, um, the doctor will start the visit with a book that's uh, developmentally appropriate. So, you know, we don't give uh, one-year-olds a uh, war and peace to read, right? We're giving them board books. And, and, uh, and then we also try to, you know, make it, um, you know, culturally appropriate. And so um, throughout the country, uh, handing out books in up to, I think we're up to 22 different languages, uh, bilingual books. Um, uh, to try to reflect the languages that are spoken in our patients' homes. Uh, and we're working on and trying to improve kind of the cultural representation of characters in the books as well. And then the doctor will talk about, uh, you know, now that your child's one, uh, they like board books, they like pictures of babies, and here are some ways that you read with a one-year-old to help build their language, and then give a couple tips and kind of assess and see how the child interacts with the book and with their parents or caregivers. And that's kind of the real key is that it's a trusted messenger talking about the importance of reading every day and then giving some tips because it's different reading with the one-year-old than it is with the three-year-old than it is with the five-year-old. And so trying to take away some of those kind of uh, barriers that might make parents hesitate to want to share books. So in the clinic visit, you know, by the time, say you're the pediatrician and the, and the, and the parent comes in with, um, with, the, with the, say they're maybe a new patient who was like one-year-old, uh, so before you do like your sort of like H and P and whatnot that you would otherwise do, say the kid is coming in with, uh, I don't know, a new rash, you, you'd sort of like incorporate the literacy piece in your otherwise typical clinical visit. 
Yeah. So the, a lot of the hesitation when I've been around and kind of talked about uh, and tried to uh, encourage other providers to integrate regenerative into their practices, we know, how do you find the time in an already busy clinic schedule? You're asked, you know, primary care docs are asked to do so many things within, you know, 20 minutes to 30 minutes, depending on how much time you get. Um, and you know, I think the, the beauty of it is, you know, once you do it, it, it really is seamless because you often, you know, uh, if you talk to, you know, parents and patients about, you know, well, what, what makes a really skilled doctor um, uh, so skilled, one of the first things is that ability to kind of build a rapport right from the start, you know, reach out and read is great from that part because we're coming in with a gift. You open your visit with a book, uh, really helps set the child at ease. And then, you know, when you go through our training, and so, you know, we train providers with like a 45-minute CME course uh, before you start handing out books. And that kind of talks about how you can use the book as part of developmental surveillance as well. And so, you know, within those first 30 seconds, you give the child the book, you're looking at their motor skills. How are they holding the book? What's their vision like? Are they able to say a couple words um, like you would expect at, the age, at their ages? Or what's their relationship with like their parents or with the children around them, their siblings? Um, you know, you can pick all this up very quickly um, uh, and it kind of cuts down on, you know, a conversation or if you were to ask them kind of piece by piece, uh, you know, uh, throughout your visit, it might take two, three minutes to get all that information that you can kind of glean within 30 seconds. And so, um, and so, uh, you know, I have, have yet to hear anyone who's started to do the program come back to me and say, you know, it's just too much time. Um, I, I'm going to have to quit because I can't fit it in. It, it really just becomes a seamless part of the visit. Um, and, you know, that uh, shows up in other benefits that you see where parents rate their uh, pediatricians or family practice providers as more helpful uh, if they're participating in Reach Out and Read. Uh, providers actually enjoy their practice and rate um, their satisfaction with their practice higher if they're participating with the Reach Out and Read. Um, and, and so I think there's, it, once you get over that kind of initial concern about time, you can really start to see a lot of the benefits. Yeah, that sounds really neat. I, I hadn't even thought about the part of like sort of like assessing, you know, the things that you're looking for clinically in a visit through the introduction of a book. Uh, and so I wonder, like, is this something that gets embedded in some residency programs so that when, you know, the docs sort of like graduate from residency, they're out of the door, ready to participate in? Yeah, so that's been one of my pushes, certainly it's coming into Reach Out and Read as a resident. It wasn't universal in my residency program. And so one of the first things I did was kind of present it to my residency program. Uh, I helped with another um, doc, Aaron Grom, and we started Reach Out and Read at our clinical um, site for Continuity Clinic. Um, and then uh, have gone and now are to the point where interns at our pediatrics program at the University of Minnesota all get a presentation from me and then are all um, going through um, reach out and retraining as part of their intern year. And we're doing that at several of the family practice uh, residency programs um, across uh, the Twin Cities. In fact, one uh, United um, Family Practice in St. Paul was one of the very first residency programs to kind of standardize it. And they've really been a leader as far as how we train and interact with residents. And I really see that as key because, you know, and I'd like to even go further back. I really think this is like, these are concepts that we should be talking about in medical school because 
um, you know, I've, I've given talks linking, you know, early literacy to health literacy and how that's something that all doctors should be, you know, aware of. Um, and, but I think certainly getting it embedded earlier on creates the expectation that when they leave training, they go to another practice that they're not doing reach out and read. Hopefully one of the first questions asked is why not? And the second question will be then, well, how can we help bring it there? Yeah, that sounds really neat. Sort of like going to the source and hopefully that will help, you know, sort of like with the spread of the program. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a question. So when thinking about education um, and all these interventions early on and, you know, as say your participants in Reach Out and Read, as in, you know, the children progress, get to college, there's some studies that show that, for example, Black people sort of like cash in less from the health benefits of education. I don't know if you've come across some of those. And if so, if you have any thoughts on, you know, what might be the, like, like at the root of this difference? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think a lot of people have talked, uh, I think a lot uh, more eloquently and educated than me about it, but I, I think it's racism, you know, right? I think it's systemic and structural racism that um, continues to, uh, impact the opportunities they feel. We know that um, racism uh, has, you know, there's more um, people recognizing racism as what we call an ACE, right? An adverse childhood experience. And so, and we know that ACEs have like a biological impact on one's body um, and can actually impact all the way down to the epigenetic level of, you know, how the our genes are expressed and passed on to our children. And, and so I would, you know, it's, you uh, kind of disappointing, shocking, but not surprising uh, that, you know, no matter your educational level, no matter even your wealth, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion um, around maternal mortality and looking at, um, you know, superstars like Serena Williams and Beyonce, who they have wealth, they have um, some degrees of education, uh, they have, you know, fame, you know, all the things that you think would protect against um, some of these uh, risk factors that uh, many women of color face around maternal uh, mortality, but yet they're in maternal health, but they're, you know, still facing it. And I think, you know, there's, uh, I think racism is at, at the core of that. And so I, I think that extends certainly to, you know, educational um, uh, opportunities and the fact that we can do our best to build a system that gives every child a book in their clinic, uh, that where every family is reading um, to their children from an early age, but if we're not also working to address institutional and structural racism, um, that that we're still going to uh, see these gaps persist. Absolutely. So I know Reach Out and Read seems to be widely accessible at this point. Um, so what's your advice to any, I don't know, medical student, uh, resident, or already practicing physician out there um, when it comes to contributing to their patients' um, literacy or sort of like increased engagement with reading? Yeah, so I mean, um, you know, hopefully it's obvious that the my first advice is, is if you haven't uh, participated, if you're not participating in Reach Out and Read, uh, really explore uh, getting connected. Uh, there's a national website, reachoutandread.org. Uh, um, and then from there, you can see if there's participating um, sites uh, near you. Uh, you can also help connect with different local chapters or affiliates. Each state and kind of region has 
a little bit different um, flavor of how they practice reach out and read and some like in Minnesota and some other states where independent 501c3 that's affiliated with the National Center and then some are go directly through the National Center and so I think going through the national website is a good place to start. Um, I think you know certainly in the meantime because uh, that can take some money it can take some organization um, you know one of the things that we encourage uh, our high-performing clinics to do is create connections to local libraries and so this doesn't you know take um, participation reach out and read you know at, at my clinic our care coordinator just reached out to um, the librarians at our local library and they came up with a, a sheet of uh, like story times and different events that they were having at the library that we can then hand out we uh, developed a sheet where um, parents can fill out their information and we can register them and their children for library cards that can then get sent out to them um, you know, our libraries have done a good job creating different book lists. If you're wanting to talk to children about things like experiencing racism or sexism or ableism or, um, you know, uh, a number of issues. Um, and so kind of, I think really trying to connect as much as you can with your local libraries um, can really help uh, give parents more tools um, to kind of make literacy just part of their, their everyday lives. I really like the uh, the point about connecting with local libraries. So I've come across a study that showed librarians are actually one of the more trusted professionals um, in our society. Um, and just when thinking about, you know, the library, the local library as a place of community building, um, sort of like instilling a you know additional resilience and also. Uh, for promotion of healthy behaviors. That's actually, I feel at least from my vantage point as a medical student, a underutilized like resources or sort of like node when thinking about how to best uh, engage when it comes to community outreach. Yeah, and so many you know families are already the um like at least aware of the library or they go to the library, a lot of them go there for their you know internet um access or other uh, um, you know, even some job training opportunities and things like that. And so I think just kind of making the connection of how it can also help um, develop uh, their child's literacy and kind of help encourage a love of reading, which is what we're really looking for. Absolutely. And I really appreciate learning from your insight. It's always good to talk to a fellow indomitable lion. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. Yeah, I went into residency really interested in global health with the interest of going back to Cameroon, but um, kind of found this passion for early literacy and advocacy uh, and, and now I've kind of reshifted to say like I really think there's a, a opportunity to do uh, better early childhood systems in our countries across the world and so my hope is one day that uh, we'll be going back to uh, Cameroon and helping develop their early childhood system. Absolutely well thank you so much it's been a pleasure having you and of course you're welcome to uh, be back on a podcast. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.